This is Michael Cowan, and welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation. You are the leader in the courtroom, and you want the jury to be looking to you for the answers. When you figure out your theory, never deviate. You want the facts to be consistent, complete, incredible. The defense has no problem running out the clock. Delay is the friend of the defense. It's tough to grow a firm by trying to hold on and micromanage. You've got to front load a simple structure for jurors to be able to hold on to. What types of creative things can we do as lawyers, even though we don't have a trial setting? Whatever you've got to do to make it real, you've got to do to make it real. But the person who needs convincing is you. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Trial Lawyer Nation. Your source to win bigger verdicts, get more cases, and manage your law firm. And now, here's your host, noteworthy author, sought-after speaker, and renowned trial lawyer, Michael Cowan. Today on Trial Our Nation, I'm joined by my partner, Mallory Peacock, and we're going to talk about our last trial. How are you doing today, Mallory? I'm doing good. I'm still recovering from trial. It was only two days ago that we got a verdict, so I'm still a little tired. <laughs> yeah. Before we jump into the trial, as always, we want to thank Law Pods. Law Pods sponsors our podcast. They make our lives so easy because all you and I have to do is talk. They do all the recording, the editing, the setting everything up, the making the clips to post on social media and advertise the podcast. I love working with Law Pods. If you want to do your own podcast, I really recommend them. So let's talk about it, Mallory. So we were in trial for about two and a half weeks in Hidalgo County, Texas, on a tough case. Yeah. So Hidalgo County, for people that don't know that aren't from Texas, is right on the border. It's, yeah, it's like, what, four, three and a half, four hours from San Antonio. So it was a little bit of a travel uh, drive for us, but it's also where me and Michael first started practicing law together. So... Yeah, in fact, it, the judge, your first trial as lead counsel many years ago was in the same courtroom with the same judge. So that had to be an interesting experience for you. It was. It was. I've grown a lot, obviously. It's been a number of years. And, you know, funnily enough, in the middle of trial, we celebrated. Well, we didn't really celebrate because we were in the middle of trial. We had a coffee to celebrate <laughs> that mean you've been practicing law together for 10 years. So that was exciting, too. Yeah, I am so happy and blessed. And here's to many, many, many more decades of practicing together. Yeah. I say many more decades. I'm 53. At least maybe two more decades of practicing <laughs> together. Well, I think people are really excited to hear about this verdict that we got. So I guess before we start talking about how we did it and what we did, what was the verdict, Michael? Okay, so it was a product liability case. They found the product defective. They allowed $17.5 million in damages. That's all compensatory. Unfortunately, they did find that our client was half at fault because he did lose control of the forklift and, and caused the crash. But they found that the forklift manufacturer was half at fault. So under Texas law, we get half the damages. So, you know, $8.75 million. With interest, it'll be over ten. You know, not a bad day of work. Not a bad couple weeks. <laughs> yeah. And actually, it was a really fun case to try. We had some real professionals on the other side that made just trying the case as pleasant of an experience as it can be. We've all tried cases with people that are really difficult to deal with on the other side. And luckily, these are professional, very good lawyers that we have against us. Yeah, although part of me, and I even told them this, is like, I'd almost prefer someone a little less professional and less good. I mean, they were, <laughs> I mean, really, really, really good lawyers. I mean, one... Just does has done these cases all around the country for 20-something years, had never – his former associate reached out to me. I think he had won 23 in a row before we tried ours on this particular product theory. And the other guy uh, – I mean, I've been at trial before. He's the best person I've ever seen in, in South Texas, not all of Texas, on the defense and trying cases. I mean, we were fortunate enough to, to – you know, they were both gentlemen and professional, but they were really good, which is yeah. probably why we got 50-50 on the – on the comparative fault. If we got someone that was more of a jerk or that would have annoyed the jury, we may have done better on the comparative fault. But I'm still happy with the with the result, especially since there was no settlement offer that would have put a penny in our client's pocket. It was they said they'd never even pay a hundred thousand. So it was one of those, you know, no pressure, just go try it and, and uh hope for the best. Yeah. I the best it was a good result, um, I think. And I think the client's happy with the result too and how do you feel? I feel really good about it. You know, I, I'm going to be really honest. So a little bit about the case. You know, it, our client was operating a stand-up forklift. And on a stand-up forklift, you don't – there's just an opening behind you. There's not a door. You don't have a seat or a seat belt. You're just standing up there operating it. And it's – they're really tight quarters. And what happens is people – they lose their balance or they – 
think they're about to get in a crash and they just kind of instinctively stick their leg out to try to stop themselves. And But these things weigh 7,000 pounds. They don't look like they weigh 7,000 pounds, but they're really heavy. And they they must be hard to control because they crash into stuff all the time. If you look at any of them, they all have a bunch of scratches and scrapes all on the paint. And just when people lose their balance, you kind of sit sideways with using your left leg. I say you stand sideways, usually with your left leg closest to the edge. And what happens is people lose their balance and they try to instinctively, just reflectively catch themselves and their leg, left leg goes out and it gets smashed between the forklift and whatever it's crashing into. And usually, like in this case, it ends up with an amputation. I mean, you get a really bad crush, the doctors can't fix it, and then they end up having to cut off part of the leg. The horrible cases, it happens once every eight days, we found out. Yeah. The jury didn't get to find out that statistic, unfortunately. We'd lost that particular motion, but the... Uh, but, it, you know, it's happened hundreds of times before, but the industry has been winning the trials on the, on the defect allegations, saying that these are defective for this reason. As far as we could tell, they, they lost one case in the 80s and one in the 90s, and they, until this week, were undefeated in the, in the 20, is that 21st century. Yeah, 21st century. <laughs> in the 2000s, yeah. they, hadn't, they hadn't lost any, which was, you know, a challenge, but also really took the pressure off because we didn't have to worry yeah, about, for sure. you know, if we lost, oh, well, it's just money that we spent on the case. But there's no shame in losing of the last 23 people that tried it lost too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, it was a challenging case because it was unique, I think, from a product liability perspective because we were going up against the industry. So there's there's nobody that has a fix for this problem that or manufactures a fix for the problem or intends to manufacture a fix for this problem. So... It wasn't just us against one forklift manufacturer. We had to show the jury that the whole industry is wrong, the way that they make these. So how did you feel going into that? Yeah, well, it was scary. And, and as we found out when we got into the case, there was no one in the United States that was solving the problem there. Uh, the same company in Europe had solved the problem. But we'll get into that a little bit later. They, they sold a safer design in Europe than they did in the U.S., so they didn't make the U.S. design available to, to customers. I mean, sorry, they didn't make the European design available in the U.S., and that was one of our big points. But, yeah, it was that was my biggest fear is that there is an organization called the American National Standards Institute, who I used to think put out standards for industry standards. I found out American National Standards Institute, or ANSI, actually gets accredits other organizations to put out standards and the standard for uh, stand-up forklifts that applies in 2004 was amended to have something that says, if it's a stand-up forklift, don't put a door on it because you want people to be, if, the, if it's going to go off a loading dock or if it's going to tip over, you want people to be able to jump out. And so one of our design, safe alternative designs, was going up directly against the industry, written industry standard, the ANSI standard, which they had been very, very successful using in other trials, saying, hey, this is the industry standard, we met it. We knew from our focus groups it was going to be a problem. So it was a challenge, and we had to figure out how we're going to get past that challenge. Yeah, yeah. So I think we need to back up a little bit just so that the listeners know a little bit more about what we're talking about. So these stand-up forklifts and industry standards for open operator compartment, I mean, can you kind of draw us a picture of what we're looking at here? Imagine it's a, a forklift, so you have forks in front. Then kind of around the operator, you have like kind of steel plate, like plate steel in front of you on either side of you. But behind you, there's a big opening so you can step in and step out. You're standing up when you're operating. You're not sitting down. You're standing up. One of your feet has to be on something called a dead man's pedal, which is basically like a little round thing that if you pick your foot up, it's going to apply the brakes. Your right hand is going to be on a lever. And, you know, if you push it forward, it goes forward. If you pull it back, it will either apply the brakes or eventually go into reverse. Your other hand on this what's called a tiller, which is kind of like a steering wheel. And you usually operate these things going backwards. Uh, so you, the forks are behind you because when you have a load, you can't see where you're going. And so you're standing sideways, kind of looking uh, usually to your right, kind of behind you almost with one hand. You're all twisted around with one hand on one lever, one hand on the other lever, one foot on this pedal. And the problem is if you lose your balance or if you are going to crash into something and, and instinctively kind of stick your foot out to stop it, your foot gets stuck between the forklift and whatever you're hitting. 
And these things, they must be hard to control because they crash all the time. You see on any of them, you see a bunch of paint scrapes and paint transfers because just in these warehouses, they're always hitting up against things. And the problem is if you lose control, if you try to catch your balance, well, if you pick your foot up, one thing is you pick your foot up and try to take a step to catch your balance, you're usually what happens, your left foot goes outside the forklift. And that's how the people get all these injuries. And it applies the brake, which then it puts a force to push you outside the forklift. If you use your right hand and pull back, it applies the brakes. If you lose your left hand to try to catch your balance, and it, it steers it. And so what happens is just a minor loss of balance from someone steering a little too hard or unexpectedly taking their foot off of something turns into just loss of control, getting worse, and then you end up crashing and getting your foot crushed by the 7,000-pound forklift. Yeah. So for people that go to Home Depot or Lowe's, these are the type of forklifts that you'll see there. So these are the, I mean, they're the stand-up ones that you'll see sometimes in the aisles at forklift, uh, at Lowe's or Home Depot. Yeah. So if, if you kind of want a mental picture of what it looks like, that's where you'll see it. And they're evidently really dangerous because there have been hundreds of people, probably thousands of people that have lost their leg operating one of these over since the 80s, we, I guess the 70s, actually, we have data going back all the way to the 1970s showing that these injuries keep occurring. And, you know, our expert went and looked at 2015 to 2020. And not only do these injuries keep occurring, but they're the most common injury with stand-up forklift. 52% of the injuries that are associated, the serious injuries associated with stand-up forklift use are these lower legs getting out of the compartment and getting crushed. So it's a big problem, but the industry has been able to avoid having to change anything because they've been able to get the standard written to support their design decisions. And they've come up with this, I call it an excuse, that if you tip the forklift over or you're going off a loading dock, let's say you're using the forklift to load an 18-wheeler trailer, the 18-wheeler pulls forward and your the forklift falls off the dock, that you could get really badly killed or really badly brain injured unless you can just jump out real quick. And they say if you have any kind of protection for the operator to keep the feet in, then, then it will make them less likely to be able to jump out and that we're, they're basically accusing us of trying to kill people in order to save legs. So I think that's a good kind of overview of, of what we are facing. So I guess this is, just so the listeners know, this is going to be a multi-part podcast because we only have an hour that we have with you. And there's a lot of different things that I think people would be interested in about how we did it. But just so that the listeners have an idea, how did you and I kind of split this up so that it, one of us didn't have to do everything? Yeah, well, we, we generally agreed that I was going to do liability and you were going to do damages. I think the only exception we made, because you did all the expert depositions, is that they had a statistician. They ended up not calling her. But if they had called her, you did such a great job on the deposition that we we're going to have you do it, do the cross of the statistician, even though it was going to kind of break that damages liability line, because I didn't think I could do it any better than what you did. Yeah, so, and so we really just, we'd split it in that way for the whole trial. So even in Vordire, I did the Vordire damages, uh, the Vordire on damages, you did the Vordire on liability issues. And then in opening, we split it the same way. Closing, we split it the same way. All of the witnesses, we split the same way. So it was, I think it worked well for us, that division, well, obviously. I think it worked really well. And I think it worked well for a couple reasons. I mean, one, it really let us each focus on our part of the case. I only had to worry about what is the liability story, how am I going to tell the liability story. Frankly, on the we told the liability story first, and so while you're putting on the damage witnesses, obviously I'm paying attention while we're in the courtroom, but at night, while you're prepping witnesses, I'm getting ready for my cross-examinations two days later. So I got to be ultra-prepared. But I think another thing is that you and I are, I mean, we're, I think we're both good lawyers, but we're different. And I think you and I, because we're different, are going to connect with different jurors. And so if we're both picking the jury, we're both doing opening and closing, we're both doing significant and equal parts of the trial, it really allow, gives us double the chance of connecting with jurors because there's the jurors who would like you more than me or the jurors who would like me more than you, and then we get the best of both worlds. Yeah. I mean, I, I thought it worked out pretty seamlessly. I think when we were going into it, I was a little bit worried about how it would look when we were splitting things like that, and would it be confusing to the jury, or would it be abrupt or shocking? But it really wasn't. I mean, it really, we had planned it out in a way that it came together pretty nicely when we did it. And I just told him in jury selection, because, you know, I started the jury selection because we were going to, we always want to talk about liability before we talked about damages. We had a very serious injury. We had a, he was 21 at the time. He was 27 because of COVID. It was a long delay. 
by the time we got to trial. But, you know, we didn't want to start talking about amputation, young guy, woe is me, until we established the defendant did something wrong because we were worried that the if we looked like we were trying to elicit sympathy, it would turn off some jurors. Uh, but I told him straight out, like, I'm going to talk about what liability or what the, whether the forklift was defective or not. And then my partner, Mallory Peacock, is going to talk about the harms and losses that were caused by this. Yeah. And no one had a problem with it. The judge didn't have a problem either. She just said, you know, you have this much time, you all split up however you want it. And the defense ended up splitting up what they did too. So it, yeah. you know, everybody was splitting everything. So I don't think it was that alarming to the to the jury. It was also helpful because I had done a lot of the depositions in the case. And so a lot of the depositions we were playing, of course, had my voice in them. So something just trial strategy to think about. If you have someone working up the case that's different than the person that's going to try it, it can be confusing if you hear some random voice they've never heard of before asking questions and then they don't know where to place them or how, is this the defense? Is this the plaintiff? So just something to think about whenever you're trying a case where you're using other people's depositions, you need to at least introduce who that person is so that it's not confusing to the jury. Yeah, I think there's another, and I don't know how much of a factor this really is, but if you have a male lawyer and a female lawyer and there's not like a huge, obvious age discrepancy, like if I'm trying a, a, a case with a two or three lawyer, your lawyer, I don't expect that the jurors would get mad that I'm not letting the, the two or three-year lawyer right. do much. But you're not a two or three-year lawyer. If I think that if I went and did everything and didn't and you didn't do much, then some woman that's on the jury who has been disrespected at work, who has not been allowed to shine, may be triggered by that by saying, oh, this this is that kind of guy. Uh, and maybe, I'm, maybe that's all in my head, but it just seems like if you're going to try a case with a woman, then you need to let her shine and get out of the way sometimes because if not, the other woman in the jury might hate you. Yeah. I don't know if that's true or not. I mean, but, and obviously if I didn't think you could do as good or better of a job at what you did than me, I, I still wouldn't have done that. Right. But luckily we've tried enough cases together where I just had absolutely no worry about you doing things because I've seen you do it and I know you can do it. Yeah. And it worked out. So <laughs> it was the right it move, did. I think. It absolutely worked out. So I want to, for this kind of chapter of this I don't know how many chapters it's going to end up being, because I think me and you could probably talk about this case forever. It took two weeks to try it, but... Uh, two chapters. We're, <laughs> we're going to talk about liability today and damages on the next one. So my first question for you on the liability perspective is you mentioned that there was this data that we had that showed most injuries on these kind of forklifts were leg crush injuries. And then also, you know, it happens once every eight days. So I think people would be curious to know, first of all, where did we get that data and how did we talk about it at trial. Yeah, so there were there were three sources of data on other injuries. One were incident reports that the company had on people getting hurt. Texas law is not really good at getting that kind of stuff in. You have to show substantial similarity to get in other similar incidents, but the problem is you have a hearsay problem too. And even though the, that company's documents, their reports are coming in from other people, they don't necessarily give a lot of details about what happened. They're typically written in a way that is just blaming the worker anyway, because that's the way that they write them up and the way employers write them up. That wasn't a particularly useful source of information for this trial. There was also OSHA has data. Now, OSHA has a big database starting, I think, in about 2015, where employers were required to report serious injuries. And the OSHA database, the good part is you could search for injuries involving stand-up forklifts, what we called a reach truck. The kind of stand-up forklift we had in our case was called a reach truck, which became pretty significant because there can be a, there's different types of stand-up forklifts. The problem is that data, again, shows what type of injury it was, what type of equipment it was. It usually doesn't show the manufacturer of the model. And so one of the big things that the defense was bringing up is, hey, you can't say that these are our forklifts causing these injuries. You can just say that they're someone's forklifts. And then they tried to, to make the hearsay objection again, which we were able to overcome the, the hearsay problem just by Rule 702 allows a, an expert to base opinions on things that other experts in the field would reasonably base their opinions on, including uh, even if it would otherwise be hearsay. And so what we did is we found other published peer-reviewed papers outside the litigation context where people were using OSHA injury data to look at workplace injury. And so I think the compromise the judge did on that was she let us, because we needed to talk about whether this was an unreasonable risk of harm or not. So she let us talk about the fact that there this was the most common injury and other injuries were happening on this kind of design 
because that's something the designer should take into account when designing the product. Uh, but she did not, on that set of data, let us get into the exact numbers because we couldn't prove who was which forklift. The third set of data that we ended up getting to use, there was another manufacturer company called Crown that in the 2000s, Crown did a really good job of getting their customers to tell them anytime a forklift got an accident, whether someone got hurt or not. So if, if one had tipped over, if one had gone off a dock, whether someone got hurt or not, and of course all the injuries, they had a pretty good set. And so our expert and then someone else had published papers where they reviewed that, that data. And again, when we were doing it, we were allowed to go into the, according to that data, what percentage of injuries were caused by this. We didn't go into the numbers, but luckily the defense, because the defense is saying, well, you know, these things tip over a lot, they go off the dock a lot, but people were able to jump off and not get hurt. So they actually went into one of those studies and said, look, this is a number of off docks or, or forklifts going off a dock that they found in the study from the 70s through 2006. This is the number of tip overs that they found in that study from the 70s to 2006, but look how few injuries there are, and then you add up the number of leg injuries is about equal to the number of tip-overs and off-docks, which according to them means if you put a door on the forklift that all these people are going to start dying and you're going to have all these deaths, and I think they were wrong on that, but that, that was what they did, but they, they put the numbers in, and so once they put the numbers in, they opened the door, and then we got to bring in the fact that there were, just from that one manufacturer in that time period, 474 lower leg injuries and one death. And that the author of that study said you should put a door on the darn thing. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, speaking of studies, one of the things we had to teach the jury about is the difference between just doing some random test and a peer-reviewed study. So how did we how did we teach the jury the difference and why did that matter in this case? Yeah. Well, I'm going to start with the why. So the, the defense had done a lot of their own, you know, the testing and a lot of their own studies. And they use what I call their lawsuit engineers, which are the people that work for the risk, depart risk management department of the company, as well as their outside testifying paid opinion witnesses would come in and get together and do tests and do studies. Because, you know, they, they did a study saying, well, if you put a door on there, it's going to take so much longer to get out and all these people are going to get killed. They did studies where they put a crash test dummy unrestrained in a forklift and, you know, tip the forklift over or knock it off a dock and then it was funny because sometimes like the forklift would, would come to a crash and the dummy wouldn't get hurt and the dummy would fall out of the forklift after the crash and hit its you know, head, which would never happen to a person. But, you know, they didn't submit any of those for peer review, our publication, whereas our expert, his own work and the work that was done by the other papers we relied on, they were all published, peer-reviewed, presented at conferences to the American Society of Mechanical Engineers. And we were just saying, look, peer review is important because you want, if you're not rigging it, then you want to present it to other other engineers, other people in the field, so that they can give it a second look and make sure this is really reliable. And if people don't peer review it, it means they know that it's not going to stand muster because it's rig testing. So I think the, and of course for appellate purposes, hopefully that would help because the in the, all the Daubert rulings are saying peer reviewed stuff is what matters, and we said we agree, and the peer reviewed stuff was in our side in this case. Tell us about how you mentioned that their tests were rigged. So tell us about how you showed that their non-peer-reviewed tests were not reliable to the jury. Yeah, well, I think, you know, one, they just, they would put crash test dummies and forklifts and knock them off a dock or put them halfway on a truck and halfway in a trailer and have the trailer move forward. And the big one on those is, you know, one, they uh, just, they're not, a crash test dummy moving at random, you know, however gravity goes, is not what a human being is going to do. A human being is going to hold on. A human being is going to tuck in, try not to fly off the forklift. Whereas, you know, the crash test dummy is really easy. I think on one of the off, the only off dock that they showed initially on using our model forklift, our model forklift kind of had like a safety cage on the front of it to keep people's fingers from being caught in the forks when they're going up and down. Normally, if you're going off the dock, you go, if, you, if you're using, and we'll go into later that this particular model of reach truck, which is the type of stand-up forklift it was, wasn't supposed to be used to load trailers. But even that being said, when you go, you go forks first into the trailer, forks first back out. And when it fell down forks first, the forks would catch it. And normally that safety cage, the dummy would land on the safety cage. Nothing bad would happen. On, on the way they did the test, it just coincidentally, the dummy was positioned way to the right. The, it was kind of angled a little bit to the left. So when it fell, it would stop. And then the dummy would then like stop, hit the safety cage, but on the edge and then fall out. And then when the dummy's head hit the cement after the dummy fell out of the, of the forklift, 
that's when the injury data, according to the all the sensors they have, the crash test, show their bad injury was. So we just kind of showed, look, you rigged this test. The more fun we had is they, they did tests where they tried to tip it over. And the problem they had is a, a reach truck, I'm, now I got to get technical on something else. So a reach truck is different than what they call a counterbalanced uh, stand-up forklift. So the counterbalanced stand-up forklift, which is probably what you may have seen at Lowe's, uh, which is one that they would use to load and unload trucks, has like one wheel in the back, and then it's got like a big weight inside, and it's got two little wheels in the front, two bigger wheels in the front. And a reach truck actually has two wheels in the back, and then it's got these little arms coming out the front with like two wheels on each arm. So it's going to be a lot more stable because of that. And so, and you're also not supposed to drive with a load that's more than like six to 12 inches off the ground because you want to keep the load as low as possible. Well, they tried tipping it over by going full speed without a load and cranking it as hard as they could steering. It wouldn't tip over. They tried putting in a heavy load and raising it way up and going to full speed and then cranking the steering as hard as they would. They could. It wouldn't tip over. And they finally had to unbalance it. They had to, like, lower one of the wheels on one side to make it like a table. If you think, if you've ever been, like, at a dinner table and one, like, they're not set, so you have to put, like, a matchbook underneath or something because it's uneven. They had to do that to that. They had to raise up one of the wheels to make it uneven. And then they had to switch out another wheel to make it grip more because to make it more likely to roll over then go full speed, then crank it as hard as they could, and then hit the brakes like right when the, the turn forces were at the maximum side size to get it to turn over. So we just showed like, look, it's got to be really hard to tip over if you have to do all that stuff to rig it. That would never happen in real life. And that was also with 4,500 pounds at maximum height. You know, you'd have to be insane to run with 4,500 pounds at maximum height at full speed with a modified forklift and crank it. And so and we just said, look, maybe other forklifts are tipping over and going off docks, but these aren't. And then we supplemented that trial with questioning them. They, when they were talking about examples, we got them to admit they weren't aware of any examples of this particular model forklift, the reach truck, going off a dock or tipping over. I think that became very powerful because they admitted they were aware of other legs that got crushed, but they were not able to give us specific examples. Like, well, we're sure it must have happened, but all their examples were other models, not this one. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and commercial vehicle cases. If you have an injury case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us by calling 210-941-1301 to discuss the case in detail and see where we can add value in a partnership. And now, back to the show. Now, why was this particular model, the reach truck, as opposed to the counterbalance or some other kind of stand-up truck, why was this particular reach truck not going off docks? Yeah, and that's something that's really important because, and I, I want to take a step back before I go into why it wasn't. It, it, go, the simple answer, it wasn't going off docks because it wasn't designed to use to load and unload trailers. It's a reach, this particular reach truck is designed when you have a warehouse, when things are really high, you can reach up to like 30, 40 feet high to put things on, you know, multiple shelves in these huge warehouses. It's not meant to uh, go in and out of trailers. It's got a lot of things that makes it hard to get in on a trailer is the mast can, the forks can get stuck because they go up too high. And the little wheels in front are too low to get over the dock plate. They can get stuck really easy. So it's just not supposed to, it's not supposed to be used for that. It's not the intended purpose of the product. And so, I mean, that really helped. And so one thing we had seen in the other cases is that in the past, and I'm not criticizing any other lawyers. I mean, we got to learn from other lawyers' misfortunes. The experts had kind of to fight the fact that these these people could get hurt or killed when they're going off a dock or the tipping over, they tried to say, well, you're better off holding on than jumping out and riding it out. And so the, plaintiff, the plaintiff's experts had done their testing and studies. The defense expert had, had done their testing and studies. OSHA had come out on the side of the defense saying, if it's a stand-up forklift, you should try to jump out. Uh, if you're going off a dock or tipping over, we decided not to do that, not to not to get in that fight. I thought of the the Joe Fried mantra, how could they be right and we still win? And so we just owned it. Like, yes, it's a bad idea to be in one of these things when, uh, when they're going off a dock or when they're tipping over. Now, this jumping out doesn't work very well, and we were able to get some examples that the defense had where people tried to jump out and couldn't and got killed. So you know, your solution is not particularly effective, but we agree it's a problem. But luckily, this particular forklift, this reach truck, isn't supposed to be used to go on and off trucks. It's not easily tipped over like some of the other ones are. It's really, really hard to tip it over. You can't find any instances of it happening in the real world. Whereas, so maybe those other forklifts shouldn't have a door on the back. But ours, either you should have a door. If you don't like the door, we found, do what you did in Europe. Put a seat and a seat belt in it. 
and you sit sideways so you can fit in a little compartment and you put a seatbelt on. It can do all the same things. But if you don't want to put a seat in the seatbelt on, then put a darn door on it. And you keep people's legs in and you don't have to worry that much about the off docks and the tip overs because this one's not used on the dock and this one isn't uh, doesn't tip over very easy. So I started this podcast by saying we were trying the industry. And by the end of it, we weren't. We weren't. We were trying a case about this specific REACH truck in this specific environment. Yeah. And the the defense kept trying to say, well, our expert says they're all defective. And I said, you know, they're wanting to fight other battles from other cases and other products. What we're talking about is this specific product. They may be right on other products, but they're not right on this one. And they need to consider the, you know, the uses and benefits and risks of the particular product they're designing. The fact that they have a risk on another product is not a reason to sacrifice legs on this one. And you know, we also got lucky. I don't think we even knew at all. I don't know that we knew how important it was going to be. But when we were taking depositions, we got the dealer to say, no, we tell our customers, do not use these things to load and unload trailers. It's not the recommended use. It's not safe. We had the employer, the supervisor said, well, at one time they did, but we, we found out it's not safe. So we told our employees, do not use these to load and unload trailers. So this would not be used to load and unload trailers. And, you know, they, they're the corporate representative, the actual designer of the forklift, hemmed and hawed on it. When they asked him on direct, the, they, he testified in an afternoon. They asked him on direct, and he said, well, it's not really the intended use. You know, the intended use is doing something else. And then I guess they prepped him at night because when I cross-examined the next morning, he goes, well, this could be used to load and unload trailers. And, but I finally got him to admit, well, it's not the intended use. I mean, someone could do it, but it's not what we meant, meant to have happen. And I said, well, you know, your dealers are saying that not to. How, do, how are they figuring this out? And then the jury got it, I think. Yeah, and the reason this stand-up forklift was not, I mean, we could tell it wasn't intended for loading and unload tra- trailers is because it had these little tiny wheels that to drive over a dock plate, I mean, it could get stuck. It's, it's just not, that's not what it was for. And then the utility of this particular truck is that it can, it's called a reach truck. It can reach really up high into racks. So it has this really high mast that goes up way, way up in the air to, you know, put stuff on high shelves. And so often it's too tall to even get into, into an 18-wheeler. So it could, I mean, there's maybe it could, but it's really is not. Yeah, this one you could, you could get it. I did the math as I I wanted to see. You could get it in a trailer, but you'd have to be really careful in there because if you lifted your forks up a little too high, you'd be hitting, the mast would be hitting the roof of the trailer and causing damage and getting stuck. So, and I think that point was made really well. And, And I think the defense wasn't ready for it. I think they really, they were, I think because the defense lawyer, his former associate contacted me, who's now a plaintiff lawyer, I think he'd won 23 of them, maybe more. And I think he was ready to try the case. He had won the last 23 times. So I think when we came out and just, instead of fighting them on the off docks and then tip over, I said, that's right for those other forklifts, but th- that's not a big risk on this one. Not that, it's, not that it's not a risk at all, but it's not a big risk on this one. I don't think they were ready for that, that tack. Right. What were some of the other defenses that we kind of had to deal with? Well, I think I think the biggest one is they claimed that well, one they you know they claimed they had a warning saying don't stick your foot out, and and our guy admitted he knew he knew not to stick his foot out, and so we had to hit that two ways. One, we had to really show in product design, the warnings are only supposed to be a last resort. So you, you say you try to design out the any dangers from the product. If you can't change the design to eliminate the danger, then you try to guard against the danger by putting like doors and other kind of guards. If that, if that can't be done, then, then you warn, because warning is the least effective. And so, you know, we got their design engineer actually agreed with that basic premise. And then we also made sure that we got good literature from before, like articles and standards on how to design a product that were in effect, you know, well before the design of this product and just went through. So it wasn't just our experts saying it, but we backed it up. And, and it talked about you can't rely on training because the accident reports are full of people they were supposed to be trained and weren't, and they got hurt. The other thing we really did, I think, is really establish the jury. Our client did not intend to stick his foot out. He lost his balance and took this reflective, what we call compensatory step, where he just kind of stepped to the left trying to catch his balance, not realizing that that was going to get him off the forklift because it's just like one of these split-second instantaneous reactions. And that was another big fight we had because they hired so-called expert witnesses to say that you know, no, look the, look at the biomechanics. He has to have intentionally stepped out. There's no force that would make him lose his balance. And they claim they had some weird thing where they, you know, his they claimed he was going like heel backwards and stepping all the way off, whereas we were saying his foot was going out on the side. 
And so that was a really big fight because if he was stepping off on purpose, even if there was a door, he could have opened the door and then his leg just would have been stuck between the door and the forklift and crushed anyway. So that was another big fight we had because we're saying warning, you can't warn someone not to do something instinctive and reflexive. Whereas they're saying he knew better and he did it anyway. Right. So that was actually really big. It's a really technical fight that without, I think, seeing some of the evidence, it's hard to kind of explain on a podcast. But I think generally that's the issue is did he do it on purpose or did he do it by accident? And that was the biggest part of it. And honestly, I think that's a big part of why we got 50-50 is I think the jury wasn't sure. Well, no, I think we got 50-50 because he caused a crash. Yeah, he did lose control over it. Yeah. Uh, and we admitted that. He lost control of the forklift. He caused a crash. I really think that uh, we were there on the on how it got caused because, you know, you had two different expert witnesses saying two different things. But if you looked at the x-rays, you looked at the foot, you could see on either side of the foot where it was deformed. You could also see the x-rays. You can see how all the bones were pushed one direction, which would come from a side to side. The front to back, the defense had didn't really make sense. So I, I really think we 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 lost it because he wasn't he was operating it when he wasn't certified, even though his employer told him to. And he lost control and caused the crash. I think that's probably why they went 50-50. Yeah. Yeah. They didn't stick around and talk to us afterwards, so we don't know for sure. <laughs> no, I think they were they were sick of it. It was a long trial and it was a long deliberation too. So they were tired. Yeah, they were out for till nine o'clock one night and then they came back the next day and they came in a little after a little after lunchtime the next day. So they did deliberate for seven, eight hours. Now, you mentioned that our uh, client was uncertified. So how did that play a role in the overall trial? Yeah, so it, it was a double-edged sword. So they tried to claim that this was not the intended use of the forklift because the intended use of the forklift was it was supposed to only be, be used by certified and trained operators, and therefore they couldn't be liable. We tried to turn around that our client thought he was certified because he had been taught at Home Depot, a prior employer, how he got certified on a different model of stand-up forklift. But they each handled, I think that's actually why, why he got hurt and lost control because they each handled kind of different. And so you steer this much, let's say you steer like four inches on one, it's going to turn more than if you steer four inches on the other. So I think this one, probably he, he tried to make a quick steer to go around something in the aisle and it steered more than he thought he would. And then when he tried to make up for it, he just lost his balance and crashed. But so we tried to turn around saying, hey, it's not fair to hold him responsible for his employer's mix up and the employer wasn't on the jury charge. We couldn't assume they had comp and the defense didn't do what they would have had to do to, to submit him to what's called a responsible third party or to let his ne- let the employer's negligence be considered. We said, hey, it's not fair to blame him for what the employer did. And yes, we agreed the employer should have trained him. He shouldn't have been operating this. But we also know that hundreds of people who were certified and trained have had similar injuries. So let's fix the design. Yeah. So, But I think owning that was also important. If we went in there and claimed, well, he really was certified, he really was trained, and we could have argued that. We could have found an expert to say that because OSHA regs are not as clear as the defense was making them out right. to be that you have to be certified on the particular forklift. I think you do, honestly, for safety reasons. I think it's a better rule. But again, we, we could have fought that fight, but we, instead we thought, why don't we just embrace it and say, okay, yeah, he wasn't trained, but he thought he thought he was. He didn't know the rules. And his supervisor told him to do it. And so how's that his fault? He's just a 21-year-old kid trying to be a good worker. And I think that it, had we fought that issue, we may have lost credibility and ended up with more than 50%. And Texas, 51% or more, you're out. You get nothing. And so, you know, we were as close to the line as we could and still won the case. One of the other defenses, I don't think we've talked about it too much. You talked about it kind of in passing, was there's basically no way he could have lost control. I mean, they say this is a very safe machine. It doesn't go very fast. It doesn't stop very fast. What could he, we couldn't replicate some kind of mechanical failure that caused it to kind of go off course and hit a racking system. So, how did that come up in the trial and how did they try to use it? Yeah, well, so they got, you know, really experienced operators to go do a bunch of maneuvers in the forklift. And of course, they didn't lose any control. They're anticipating those movements and they measure the G-forces. And so it's interesting. There's two sets of studies. One that's mainly done by the defense people that when you put someone that knows what they're doing and they anticipate the force they're about to experience. So let's say you steer and you know that's how much steering you're going to get. You brake, you know, that's how much braking you're going to get. You do just fine. Uh, you're not going to lose control. It's not going to make you lose your balance. But we had some studies that showed if you don't expect it, if it's a force level force you're not expecting, either because you didn't realize you took your foot off the brake or you're trying to catch catch yourself when you pull back and hit the brakes or you steer and it steers more than you think it did, 
then that is enough to make you lose your balance. And then when you do lose the balance, the people in the study step to the left with their left foot, just like our guy stepped. So I think that was the big fight is whether it was, you know, of course, they were fighting us saying ours are wrong. There's no way you lose your balance. And we just had to make a big point about if you know, you know, if you're experienced and you're anticipating it, yes, you're not going to lose your balance. But if it's unanticipated, you are. And by the way, if it was so hard to lose your balance, how have hundreds of people lost their legs? And I think one of the it's something that I've been saying for a long time and you have, too. But I think it's just a real big takeaway from this case that I think listeners can take away, even if they don't have a forklift product liability cases. You have to read the literature that they cite. It rarely says what they say that it says. Yeah. And once you dig into the data from the literature, there's a lot of reasons that they're using the literature in the wrong way. So that was, I think, a really big lesson learned in this case. Yeah. And not only that, but when you're, well, two things. One, they're experts. They criticize our experts. Our expert doesn't know anything. He's never designed a forklift. But yet, their experts had relied on our experts' peer-reviewed published literature a couple. I cited it in their reports. And so, like, Dr. Gwynn, who was their biomechanics expert, you cited this one paper, right? That was by Ben Railsback, isn't it? Well, he's the same person that testified yesterday for the plaintiff, or you know, a couple of days ago for the plaintiff. Are you, are you aware of that? You reviewed, you reviewed his report in this, in this case, and you've relied on literature he's written, in your opinions. You know, I think that kind of helped us bolster. The other thing, I, you know, when they had a paper that was really bad for us, you know, we would go show who wrote it. Like, well, this was written by Exponent. You're aware that the people at Exponent that wrote the paper, they also testify for forklift manufacturers. They also get paid to come to lawsuits. I think that kind of helped diffuse some of the the defense stuff. And they're showing that they would misrepresent what it said. I mean, they, they didn't, you know, none of the literature they cited said it was impossible to lose your balance. They just said if you are anticipating it and you're a trained operator, you're not going to lose your balance. I think it was, too, they, they did a test that just, this one to me was just the silliest test. They got experienced forklift office uh, operator who'd been operating Heister Yale specific forklift. He was employed by Heister Yale, Heister Yale specific forklifts for 40 years. That's what they said. He was also part of the risk management team. Yeah. And that was their that was their test subject, right? As and then they said, look at him drive it. Look how great it look how easy it is to drive. Look how you could never use control. Yeah. And so we were, you know, Michael was able to ask questions like, okay, but this guy is someone that defends them in lawsuits. Also been doing this for 40 years on this specific machine. I, I mean, yeah. and he's the only test subject who used. Yep. It's, so that was a fun cross-examination, I thought. It, it was a lot of fun. I think we needed to do that to make them the bad guys, to show that they were cheating and they were misrepresenting. Because the problem is, you know, we can't get experts from industry because they're all, they've got the industry all tied up. Uh, and those people won't testify against forklift manufacturers. You have to get more of a general safety engineer. You know, our, and our guy had done a bunch of research and published peer-reviewed papers going back I think to the at least 15, maybe 20 years. A long time, yeah. So it's not like he wasn't an expert, but he had never worked in the forklift industry. So it made it, made it a little tougher. So I think when we showed that they were misrepresenting and they were kind of cheating in their testing, I think that really helped. So the actual standard, they called the ANSI standard. That was a really big theme in their case, that we complied with the ANSI standard. How could it be defective if we're complying with the industry standard? So how did you deal with that, Michael? Well, a couple of ways. One, it almost we almost became a government standard until... Luckily, Robert Disk, another lawyer in our office, read because there's an OSHA regulation governing forklifts, and it says that m the forklift must comply with the ANSI standard. And Texas has a law saying if you comply with a governmental standard that you are presumed not to be defective unless we can put the, basically the government on trial until the government standard is no good. But luckily, Robert read it closely, and he noticed that it was the 1969 version of the standard, not the 2009 version that they were talking about that was adopted by the government. And when we got the old 69 standard and it didn't address the issue of whether or not to put a door on or, or open the open occupant compartment. And so we threw out and they eventually gave up after we briefed the issue on whether it was a government, on it being a government standard. So now we just have an industry standard. And so what I had to do is really show what I called, uh, show how biased of a standard, show what that really was. And so it used to be ANSI got the American Society of Mechanical Engineers to get a committee together to get the standard. And for decades, the standard did not address our issue at all. In 2004, the committee voted to change the standard. And I was able to show that at the time, there were people on the committee that, you know, a lot of people and there were worked for forklift manufacturers. I was able to show that the person who was on the committee for our defendant was the same person that was in that rig test who was in the risk management department. So not one of their design engineers, but one of their lawsuit defense people was there. The so-called independent experts that were on the committee were people that testified in lawsuits 
for forklift manufacturers and this type of lawsuit. And so, you know, we were able to just be, be able to show that they were, people were getting hurt. They knew people were getting hurt. And instead of fixing it, they just went and, and rigged the committee. And I think it also helped. And, and I don't know if there's any relationship or not. I just mentioned the temporal relationship. But 2004, they issued this, the updated standard saying, use an open back, don't use a dock. 2005, the American Society of Mechanical Engineers would no longer sponsor the committee. And they formed a whole new organization. I think it was like the Industrial Truck Standards Development Foundation or some of that, that we were able to go online and look at their, because it was a nonprofit, their filings, and they were almost fully funded by the Forklift Manufacturing Lobbying Association. So basically, the industry created their own association to write these standards, and their people that they pick are, are doing the meetings, and they were well aware of the litigation involving these injuries when they changed the standard to support their position. And I think that was a big thing. I think the other thing that made the standard a lot less effective for them is they, on one hand, they said, well, the standard says not to use a door. But then they also pointed out, but we did offer a door if you wanted one and the employer chose not to have one. Therefore, you know, that's not on us. And so I'm like, well, how can you offer the door if it's not safe to have a door on there? I think that was a, a confusing one. And so we got them to admit that the one with the door did comply with the standard or they wouldn't have sold it. That the model they sold in Europe where you could actually sit down, have a seatbelt on, that that complied with the standard that you would, if not, you wouldn't have sold it. So I think the standard ended up being a lot less of an issue than we thought it was going to be. Yeah. And we ended up, so we ended up, just so that we're clear, we had two alternative designs that we offered to the jury. There's two ways you can solve this problem. You could put a door on it or you can put a seat in there instead of having a stand-up right. forklift. So those were the two, those were the two alternative designs. And why two instead of just one? Well, the the if I could have had more than two, we would have had more than two. The the, the other ones our expert came up with we didn't like, and so we didn't push really a trial. But the no matter what you say, they're going to come up with a reason not to. So if you say, well, you have to put a seat in a seat belt, and well, for one reason, some reason or other, they're arguing against seat belts, which I never understood. I didn't understand uh, that the whole case. But they're going to say, well, you know, the you're like you're trying to ban motorcycles. You know, he's saying, well, you should only have, be able to have a car. That you know, there's reasons that employers might want to stand up forklift and. They didn't go into it. The reason they gave us in deposition is, you know, well, it takes a little bit longer. You have to sit down. You can get in and out of the forklift quicker if you're standing up. And uh, I'm like, okay, for a few seconds a day, you're going right. to sacrifice a leg, but whatever. But so I didn't, but I didn't like just going with one. And then the door, I mean, well, people had lost 20-something cases in a row on the door being alternative design. So we didn't want that to be our only alternative. And then, you know, you got the problem with the tip-overs of the off-docks. But if you're with the, I thought the seat with the seatbelt was safer than trying to jump off or trying to hold yourself in while you're standing up. But if they didn't like the seat or seat belt because it's too big of a change, then we can say, well, then put a door, but do something. But I really think we turned it around on them because, you know, we were able to show one of their their retained experts first looked at this issue by doing some work in 1987. And happened to be the work was for this particular manufacturer. So we were able to say, look, by the time they built this product, we know for a fact at least 25 years from when he did their first report for them to the time they built this, they've known about the problem. We were able to show that during those 25 years, they never once assigned an engineer to try to solve it. They would fight the door thing. i say, we don't want to put a door. Here's all the reasons we don't want to put a door. But they never asked one of their people, hey, is there a way you can protect legs without risking brains in tip-overs and off-docks? And so, you know, I pointed out, I even had my clients bring an old VHS tape from home. I said, remember 1987? You know, you were alive in 1987. If you wanted to watch a movie, you had to go to, there wasn't even Blockbuster yet. You had to go to your neighborhood video store and you'd have something like this and you'd pull out the VHS. And by 2012, we had Netflix and streaming video. That's because companies assigned engineers to solve problems and they did miracles. And then I went from, you know, the, the Commodore 64 and the suitcase phone to the old cell phones that were like a suitcase, briefcase with you, to the iPhone. You know, we just talked about all the, incredible developments they had during those 25 years. And so just asking, you're trying to tell me that if they gave you 25 years and a budget and assignment, you couldn't have figured this out? And I think that was a hard thing for them. So one of the things that you really wanted to find, and I think rightfully so, was a motivation. Why haven't they fixed the problem? If it's really that dangerous, like, why? <laughs> Do they just not care? What's What's the issue? And so ultimately, how did you answer that question? Yeah, to me, the motivation, and I don't know if I said it explicitly, but I certainly implied it in my questioning, is that they had made so many of these things already, and they were just locked into the defense because they knew that there's all these people losing their legs. And if they admitted that there was a problem or a solution, then they'd have to go pay all those people. And so they were more—it's not that they didn't 
cares at all about people's legs, but they cared about their money a lot more. And so to protect the company's money, they were just willing to manufacture excuses rather than solutions. Why do you think having, I mean, even though it's not an explicit motivation that we said in our minds, understanding why we think they did it, I mean, why was that important for the case? Because otherwise it makes no sense. I mean, then why wouldn't they fix this problem? And, and, and it also, they had an explanation right. for why they didn't fix the problem. According to them, if you put a door on there and it goes off a dock or tips over, people are going to get killed or have catastrophic brain injuries or get paralyzed. And they said, look, these foot injuries are very unfortunate, but they're all caused by employees who misuse the product. And the only alternative is to have people killed or brain damaged. And so we're, we're just making the best possible choice in a tough situation. And that's a really hard thing to overcome. And so, you know, I had to kind of, I think we had to show that's a bunch of crap. That's right. not true. You didn't look for a solution. You didn't want to find a solution. You actually, in Europe, had solved the problem. You just chose not to offer the solution in the U.S. Which I still don't understand why that was not offered in the I don't. They never explained that. They never had a good <laughs> I don't. I don't know what. And it wasn't like a recent. They had sold it in Europe since the 1990s. It wasn't like a recent change. It, it wasn't uh, even I just think, sold here. I don't know. I think they were just, I think the risk management people were just so in on defending these lawsuits that none of them wanted to, and the industry is working together in defending the lawsuits. And so like nobody wants to solve the problem because then your buddies and the other companies are going to, are going to get hit and you're all trying to have solidarity because you don't want to get hit with all these lawsuits. And I think that just, you get that, that mentality that you get so much worried about the lawsuits that you stop worrying about the safety of your, of your customers. So one of the challenges we had, and this is the same challenge we're having on this podcast, is most jurors aren't super familiar with forklifts or how they work or what they look like or any of that kind of stuff. And so we really struggled with visuals for this case. What did we want to use? How could we use it? So, Michael, why don't you tell us about all the iterations of visuals that we had here? <laughs> Yeah, so, uh, you know, we did do, we ended up using a lot of photographs and kind of just putting like like the PowerPoint footprint, bootprint icon to show where feet were. Uh, is what we ended up doing. And it was, what we ended up doing was like super simple, I think effective, but it was like really clear, really simple using real photographs of either our forklift or of other forklifts, our videos of our forklift or other forklifts and testing. Uh, we had actually done other stuff. Our, our experts had done all this computer modeling problem with that is there's always some speculation. We don't know exactly how how it happened. There was all these fights about what angle it was and <laughs> what the exact speed was. And you, you just get into all these side fights when you try to use one of those things. And they're cartoons. The defense called them cartoons. They did uh, keep saying the word cartoons. Because yeah. we didn't really use them. The defense pulled them out and then used them to try to make fun of them to discredit our people. But uh, we, we didn't really decide on the animations that much. We actually... We looked for like, because we were hoping when we were getting ready to trial, we were going to be able to bring up the fact that from 2015 to 2020, it was like 200 and something feet lost, one every eight days. So we looked at, well, can we bring 277 model feet? And we found some really creepy stuff out. We went on Amazon and don't look for model feet on Amazon. There are some creepy people out there <laughs> buying some weird uh, foot products. But I still uh, get I still get like weird ads for it because I looked oh, no. that one time on my phone and now every once in a while I'll get like some... Foot Creepy silicon, <laughs> pervert silicon foot yeah, ad. Yeah. Ugh. I'm like, it's not but, for me. It's just not. It's for kids. Yeah. Uh, and we also find the non-pervy uh, foot models were going to be way too expensive to buy hundreds of them. So then we had someone print like a giant banner with 277 feet printed on it and like in work boots. And we're going to go sh you know, unroll it with our expert and show how many feet uh, were used. Uh, we ended up not doing that for two reasons. One, the judge wasn't going to let us get the number in. But even if they, they had the courtroom was too small and awkwardly shaped, we never wanted to be able to pull it off. We had our our exhibit person build three life size kind of forklift compartments. One the way it was, one with the seat the seat belt, one with the door. The a huge fight over them. We eventually agreed that we wouldn't use the one with the door, but we'd use the other two, and we got an agreement that we'd be able to use them. But then. We couldn't get them in the courtroom. They wouldn't fit through the door. <laughs> Lesson learned. They, I mean, the, if you measured the doorway, it would fit through. But when you open the door, it's one of those glass doors that had like a metal thing you pushed on and that metal thing blocked it. And we couldn't get them in the courtroom. So spent a bunch of money and couldn't use them. Lesson learned. But I think it worked. I think it, it worked just fine. 
with like like I said, just pictures and then annotating the pictures. Uh, so putting footprints where the where the feet were, circling things, highlighting things. Uh, I think we also really did a good job of taking the literature that we used and putting up the whole page so the jury could tell we weren't taking things out of context, but then pulling up the sentences and the parts we want to talk about so they could look at it bit by bit, one piece by one piece, or if, if you had a whole paragraph highlighting one on one slide, highlighting the next sentence on the next slide, the next sentence, so we could go through them slowly enough where the jury can understand them, but we're also letting them read it for themselves so they know that we're not misrepresenting it. I think that was really effective on uh, using the learned treatises and you know, the literature that way. But yeah, it was a really a, a video and photograph-driven trial. Yeah, yeah, our visuals were simple. And honestly, it's sometimes when your visuals are so complicated, then the jury thinks, oh, this is a really complicated case. And what we wanted the jury to know is this is actually a really simple case. And it's, you don't need to have all these crazy animations to understand it. And you don't need to have all these weird angle measurements and all this complex stuff to understand this case. And when you're telling the jury it's simple and then you're making it look really complicated, they don't know what to think about what you're telling them. In fact, we chose not to, because it didn't really matter to, to us, uh, we chose not to fight them on like, the angle of impact. I mean, they, they said the they did this, all this testing to show that our experts said it was 3.9 miles an hour, but it was probably three miles an hour, not 3.9. And our experts said that it came in at 15 degrees and they said it was 31 degrees, none of which mattered if you lost balance. I mean, if that's our, our theory. So they've spent all this time going through that. And we're like, okay, and right. does that change anything You know, from our theories? No. And I think not getting sucked into just having to prove everything they say is wrong and trusting the jury that they can figure that out, I think was really important. Because if we got sucked into every argument the defense made, the case would have been so confusing. And just knowing when we could say, yes, you maybe you're right about that. Or yes, you are right about that. But it doesn't change the outcome of this case for this reason. Right. Uh, and made it just a much simpler case to understand. I think that's important, too. When you were cross-examining their witnesses, you know, we— you didn't cross-examine them on every point that they made because no. we're not fighting where they want to fight. We're fighting where we want to fight. And a lot of your cross-examinations were written in advance, and they didn't change too much um, based on what they said because we didn't care what they said. We cared right. about making our points through the cross-examination. And I think it's it's something that it's easily easy to get sucked in to what they're doing, especially when they're making stuff up. I mean, when they're saying stuff that, Yet we know they can't really prove, but what does it matter? I mean, you know, so it's yeah. you, you gotta you gotta weigh those things, and or especially when they're making these really dramatic, over the top proclamations. I think one of the witnesses just kept saying, "See, it's common sense," and I, I was just I, I was just yeah. like, the more you have to say it's common sense, the less it seems like it's common sense. But you didn't even talk to her about common sense because that's not what we were there to talk about, and I mean. We, we yeah. could have talked about it, but why? And sometimes when you cross-examine on a point, the jury then thinks that's the important thing that they should take away, right? You're worried about it. You're concerned about it, that they made a good point, and we have to bring it up. And so if you don't bring it up, then the jury thinks, oh, okay, well, they didn't, that wasn't even important then. <laughs> yep. And I think the, the other thing just in, was important in liability is just not only bringing out the fact that they'd known about the problem for 35 years by the time we— we got the injury more than that by the time of trial, over 40. You know, they don't know. I'm sorry. It was, yeah, over 40 by the time of trial. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because the product was manufactured in 2012. Yeah, but they've known about this for decades. Right. About the problem. Right. Not only had they not looked for a solution for all these decades, but they weren't planning on making any changes. And they said that repeatedly. They said that repeatedly that they were not going to make any changes. So it gave the jury a task. They, I was able to tell them. <laughs> You know, 35 years from now, you know, we'll get into this a little bit more on this damage so it could be put more in context. But 35 years from now, are people still going to be losing their legs? Or is something going to change in 2023? That's your decision. guess it worked. <laughs> yeah. 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 So. All right. Well, I think on, um, you know, we've been going for about an hour. So I think everybody has to wait till the next episode to talk about damages. Yeah. So next time we're talking about the damages case, so it's going to be more of me interviewing you and all the great things you did on on damages and how you, we made it a story of of not just despair but hope and love and and striving and overcoming. I think it's going to be really good. I was really impressed with the job you did on that. 
So thank you all for listening. I hope this was useful. I don't want to just sit here and brag about what we did, but I want to actually hopefully provide things that you can use in your trials uh, so that you can go get some nice verdicts. One last thing. Uh, I've got a book that's out now, oh. uh, September 19th. It went to print. And so uh, if you go to trialguides.com, you can get my book, Big Rig Justice, A Comprehensive Guide to Maximizing Value in Trucking Cases or Truck Accident Cases. It's a mouthful, but that's what the SEO people wanted. Uh, but it's five <laughs> years of my life. It was ev everything I knew as of six months ago about tri trucking cases. I encourage you all to buy it. Uh, if you do buy it and read it and you like it, you know, if you can go on to trialguys.com, give me a five-star review. That helps other people learn about it, buy it. I'd really appreciate it. Well, thank you, and uh, look forward to talking to you all next time on Trial Lawyer Nation. Thank you for joining us on Trial Lawyer Nation. I hope you enjoyed our show. If you'd like to receive updates, insider information, and more from Trial Lawyer Nation, sign up for our mailing list at triallawyernation.com. You can also visit our episodes page on the website for show notes and direct links to any resources in this or any past episode. To help more attorneys find our podcast, please like, share, and subscribe to our podcast on any of our social media outlets. If you'd like access to exclusive, plaintiff-lawyer-only content and live monthly discussions with me, send a request to join the Trial Lawyer Nation Insider Circle Facebook group. Thanks again for tuning in. I look forward to having you with us next time on Trial Lawyer Nation. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and commercial vehicle cases. If you have an injury case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us by calling 210-941-1301 to discuss the case in detail and see where we can add value in a partnership. This podcast has been hosted by Michael Cowan and is not intended to nor does it create the attorney-client privilege between our host, guest, and any listener for any reason. Content from the podcast is not to be interpreted as legal advice. All thoughts and opinions expressed herein are only those from which they came.